ಸಹನಾವತು ಸಹನೌನಕ್ತು ಸಹವೀರ್ಯಂಕರವಹೈ ತೇಜಸ್ವಿನಾವತೀತಮಸ್ತಮಾವಿಶಾವಹೈ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ವೆಲ್ಕಮ್ ಎವ್ರಿ ಟುಡೇ ಕ್ಲಾಸ್ ಟ್ವೆಂಟಿ ಫೋರ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತಾ ವಿ ಬಿಗಿನ್ ಟಾಪಿಕ್ ಸಿಕ್ಸ್ ದ ಲಾಸ್ಟ್ ಟಾಪಿಕ್ ಆಫ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ಟು ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದ ಟೈಟಲ್ ಇಸ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕ್ರಿಪ್ಷನ್ ಆಫ್ ಎನ್ ಇನ್ಲೈಟನ್ ಸೌಲ್ Arjuna and Krishna are in the middle of the battlefield at Kurukshetra. The Pandavas are on one side and the Kauravas on the other side, all preparing for battle. Just giving you the scene again. Arjuna, on seeing the Kauravas on the opposite side, made up of his cousins, uncles, his friends, gurus, is overcome with emotions and suddenly collapses on the battlefield he becomes dejected oh krishna how can i fight and kill my cousins my friends my uncles my guru how can i do that so krishna being his friend chariot driver tries to get him out of this dejection he tries to put some sense into him arjuna what is wrong with you you are a warrior and your duty is to fight this battle arjuna for the whole of chapter 1 and the first seven verses of chapter 2 gives all the reasons why he should not fight we've been through that and then in verse 7 finally arjuna says to krishna i'm so confused krishna i don't know what to do please help me please advise me i can't think straight so then from verse 11 of chapter 1 so verse 11 of chapter 2 to verse 53 which we finished last sunday 42 verses krishna gives out the highest philosophy of life to arjuna knowledge of how to live a perfect life how to be a man of perfection how to reach the ultimate goal of a human being the state of self realization krishna knows arjuna will not understand anything but he continues to talk to arjuna now in today's verse verse 54 arjuna partially wakes up from this state of dejection and he asks krishna okay krishna you keep talking about self realization then tell me krishna what is a self realized person like yeah no krishna is thinking 
What kind of question is that to ask at this time? They're in the middle of the battlefield, waiting to fight. And Arjuna is asking, what is a self-realized person like? Can you imagine? But, you know, Krishna being benevolent, he understands his state of mind. We can all picture ourselves in that same situation. So from that question, Arjuna's question, Krishna knows that really Arjuna is not really aware of the situation yet. He's not really woken up. Otherwise, he wouldn't ask a question like that. Yeah, you all agree? They're blowing the conches. They're getting, they're pulling the, the arrows ready to fight. The elephants are getting up. And he says, what is a self-realized person like, Krishna? So in this last topic of chapter 2, verse 54 to 72, for the next 18 verses, Krishna gives us a brilliant, clear description of a self-realized person. And if we understand exactly what Krishna is saying, we understand what a self-realized person is like. We can strive to become like that from his description. You see, as I said before, this chapter should be at the end. Because after knowing and understanding all the knowledge of the 17 verses, then we should know what a self-realized person is like. But it's given it to us now. And it, it covers it again later in later chapters. So last class, we finished um, the last topic, which explained how to act in the world to reduce desires. Selfless service. Do not act on desires, good or bad. Just do what you ought to do. Then you reduce the bulk of your desires that you have. And then in the last verse we covered, verse 53, we explained once you've achieved that, you've reduced all your desires, how to meditate. How to meditate, think of that one single thought you meditate on, and you become self-realized. We explained that in the last class. Somebody asked me, a student asked me from this class, does it matter what mantra you, you meditate on? Which mantra you thought, think of while you're meditating? We suggested Om. And the question, the answer is no. It doesn't matter what you, which mantra you meditate on, which mantra you think of. As long as your mind is on that single thought, it's irrelevant. Because it's an exercise to eliminate the mind. But we use Om because Om is another word for God. So while we're saying, chanting Om, we're thinking of God. When you pronounce Om, it's pronounced A-U-M, Om. 
When you write OM, you're switching as OM. That's why you see sometimes car number plates with AUM written on it. So when you pronounce it, it's OM, AUM, and when you write it, it's OM. So, but it's irrelevant which mantra you focus on. Like I said, in some cases, people focus on their breath. Any questions before we begin verse 54? So try it, practice a bit of meditation, see how it is, how difficult it is to control that mind, that monkey mind. And as you practice more and more, the more you're aware and more you're able to, grapple it to that one thought. Takes a long time. Okay, so we'll begin with verse 54. So this is verse 54. Arjuna's asking the question, yeah? Arjuna uvacha stita prajnasya kabasa Samadishtasya kesava stita dihi kim prabaseta kimasita brajeta kim Arjuna uvacha stita prajnasya kabasa samadishtasya kesava stita dihim prabaseta Arjuna said, What is the description of one of steady wisdom merged in the superconsciousness state, O Kesava? How does one of steady wisdom speak? How sit? How walk? So this topic begins with Arjuna asking Krishna. What is the characteristics? What is the description of a God-realized person? He uses three words to ask this question, which are, and you'll, you'll come across these words more later on in the chapters, stita pragnya. You'll come across this word quite often, stita pragnya, which means a person with steady wisdom. Sometimes we also refer stita pragnya to a self-realized soul. A person with steady wisdom. I don't know if there's an English equivalent. Then he uses the word samadita, a person whose mind is in absolute tranquility. And then stita dihi, a person whose intellect is established in reality. So Arjuna is asking, Stita Pagnya, what is the description of one of steady wisdom? Merge in the superconscious state, O Kesava, Kesava is Krishna. How does he speak? How does he sit? How does he walk? So these three words, Sita Prignya, Samadita, Sita Dihi. These three words are a definition of a self-realized person. Is that clear, Vinay? Those three words mean self-realized person. 
Arjuna also asks, how is a person who is self-realized, how does he behave, Krishna? How does he talk? How does he sit? How does he walk? This is what Arjuna is asking. Common, it's, a, it's, a, it's a general question. Arjuna does not really know what he is asking. He's asking questions without thinking. How does he talk? How does he walk? How does he sit? Now, answering those questions literally means, makes no sense. Krishna can't say he walks very, very straight. <laughs> or he sits with his legs crossed. You know, it has no meaning. He talks only about the self. He only talks pleasant things, flowery language. This has no meaning. What, what can he gain from that? So, Krishna interpretates Arjuna's four questions in a much deeper way. So, it has some meaning. So, Arjuna's first question, what is his nature? Meaning, how does one who is a perfect human being, a self-realized person, what is he like? How does he behave? Then the second question, how does he talk? Now, talk is part of the five sense organs. How do we perceive the world? So when he says, how does he talk? He means all five organs of action. So it also means, how does he see? How does he touch? How does he hear? How does he smell? How does he taste? Sometimes you'll find in, in the Gita, in the verses, when they use one of the sense organs, they actually mean all five. So how does he talk meaning? The five organs of action. How does he behave in the world? How does he express himself using those five organs? Is that clear, Nilam? Does that make sense? Yeah. Third question. How does he sit? Now, how does he sit means what's his inner nature like? When you're sitting on your own, you're thinking within. You're one with yourself. His inner your inner nature, your personality, what is it like? What is it like? What is going on inside you? What is going on inside a self-realized person? Then the fourth question, how does he walk? Now, how does he walk means how does he behave when he contacts the outside world? When he meets people, when he meets objects, how does he interact with these things? So these questions have more meaning if you interpret in that way. And in the next few verses, Krishna answers these questions. Any questions? Is that clear? Okay. We're only gonna, we're gonna do after this first, we're gonna do one more because it's quite deep. And like I said, these verses have a very deep meaning. 
I mean, one verse can completely change your whole perspective of life. So it's better that we understand it as well as we can, yeah? So, Arun Abin, could you read verse 54? The blessed Lord Krishna st starts his exposition of a man of perfection. Sorry, um, I, um, is it verse 54 you're supposed to read? Or? Oh, sorry, yeah, I've started reading because I turned the page. No problem. Sorry. Um, in this verse, Arjuna seems to recover from the emotional stupor into which he has fallen. He asks Krishna to describe the nature and characteristics of a God-realized person. In the next 18 verses, Krishna paints a magnificent picture of perfection of the ideal human being. This portion of the Gita is acclaimed a masterpiece in scriptural literature. Arjuna has remained quiet from verses 11 to 53. He breaks his silence in this verse. He asks Krishna to describe the nature and behavior of a God-realized person. Krishna answers with a brilliant exposition of that ultimate state of human perfection. Arjuna uses three words to indicate the perfect individual. Stita prajna, Samadishtaha and Sita Deha. Sita Prajna literally means a person of steady wisdom. Samadishtaha means one whose mind is in absolute tranquility. Sita Deha, one whose intellect is firmly established in reality. These three words jointly define a self realized person, an enlightened soul. Arjuna packs the verse with four questions pertaining to such a perfect individual. What is his nature? How does he speak? How does he sit? How does he walk? These four questions symbolizes far more than their literal meaning. The Sastra's scriptures commonly present such broadly intended verses. But the first question, Arjuna asked Krishna to describe a self-realized person. When someone has reached that ultimate state of human existence, what is he like? What is his nature? In the second question, he asks, how does he speak? How does the one who has reached perfection expresses himself? How does the infinite infinite with which his individuality has merged, express through a finite form. Speech, one of the organs of action, represents all the organs of action. Again, a literary device frequently adopted in the sashras. Thus, the word speech in the question encompasses all actions. Therefore, how does he express himself through all his activities? Through his general conduct in life? The third question, how does he sit, refers to his inner personality. When one sits, he is with himself rather than moving about in the external world. He remains in contact with his inner feelings and thoughts. The question, therefore, pertains to his inner nature. What happens within him? 
The fourth question, how does he walk, refers to his behavior with the outside world. Walk symbolizes his contact with things and beings of this world. How does he react with the external environments and in events? The wider interpretation of these questions lends credibility to Arjuna's otherwise meaningless queries. Moreover, Krishna's following answers relate to the questions implied by these interpretations. Thank you. Any clarifications there? Okay. So that answering those questions has a lot more meaning than what Arjuna is literally asking. But he's not in that right frame of mind, so we, we allow that. So verse 55. Shri Bhagavanuvacha Prajahati Yadakaman Sarvan Parthamanogatan Atman Yevatmanatushtaha Stita Pradnasta Dochyate Sri Bhagavanuvacha Prajahati Yadakaman Sarvan Parthamanogatan Atman Yevatmanatushtaha the Blessed Lord said, When one completely casts off, O Partha, all desires of the mind, and is satisfied in the self, by the self, then is one said to be of steady wisdom. Artha means Krishna, another name for Krishna. When one completely casts off, O Partha, all desires of the mind and is satisfied in the self, by the self, then is one said to be of steady wisdom. So we've, last topic, we explained how to cast off desires. The whole last topic was about that. And you reach that state of meditative to to meditate. So we ex- enhance it a bit more here. Krishna in this verse replies to Arjuna's first question, who is a sthita pragna? Meaning who is a self-realized person? What is a description of an enlightened soul? You ready to understand what is a self-realized soul? Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, Krishna answers, a self-realized person is one who has completely destroyed all desires of the mind, meaning not a single desire is left, zero desires. That's one description. He is a self-realized person. Remember the equation, God equals human minus desires. We are all humans with desires. Eliminate the desires, we become God. Self-realized person. This is exactly what it means. Now, all of us go through a phase of being self-realized. Zero desires. We are all self-realized at a certain time. 
but we're not aware of it. Anyone know when? Anyone? Deepa? When you're in deep sleep. In deep sleep. We go through three states of consciousness. Waking state, which is what we're in now. Dream state, when you go to sleep and you dream. And deep sleep state, when you're in deep sleep. So why are you in that state, in deep sleep? Why are you considered to be self-realized? Anyone? Shilamen? Yeah, because we have no thoughts at that time. No thoughts. We have no thoughts. When you are in dreamless sleep, deep sleep, there are no manifest desires. There are no thoughts, no vasanas, they're dormant. No vasanas, therefore no thought, therefore no desires. Zero desires means you're self-realized. Shall I just mute your mic, please? Thank you. No manifest desires in the mind. Did you know that? You all self-realize in deep sleep. We need to extend that now in the waking world. <laughs> Doesn't mean you stay permanently in deep sleep, yeah? <laughs> Don't wake up. When you have no desires in the waking state, then you're 100% self-realized. Any questions? Does everyone understand that example? Think about it. We're going to take this verse slowly. I want you all to be on the same page as we go along. So deep sleep, no desires, self-realized. Waking world, desires manifest. Why? Because the mind intellect is now available to you. And the thoughts start coming through. Ralph Waldo Emerson a man, is a great um, literary writer. Says, a man is God playing the fool. Man is God playing the fool. He actually read a copy. He actually read Bhagavad Gita, by the way. It was translated in English in 1800 something. And he had a copy of it. And after reading, he said, A man is God playing the fool. This is the problem. We're too dependent on the world. A plant is 100% dependent on the world. You don't give it any water, it'll die. Even if you leave the water, you're going on holiday, you leave a bit of water next to it, you can't get to it, it'll die by the time you come back. 100% dependent. Animals are less dependent. They can go and hunt for food, water. They're less dependent on the world. A human being is designed to be completely independent. But we're more dependent than a plant. So this state of fulfillment, state of self-realization comes when one revels in the self by the self. What does that mean? 
One revels in the self by the self. Any idea? It says, all desires of, when one completely casts off all desires of the mind and is satisfied in the self by the self. Any idea what that means? One revels in the self by the self. Yeah, Ben uh, Nilam. Well, is it that um, because everything, the self contains all that is, you're content without having to reach out of that state for anything else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're sort of on the cuff of it, yes. <laughs> but any, anybody else? When one revels in the self by the self. Yeah, Vanita? Is it when you're not affected by anything external because you're within your Atman, that's, you contacted that? Yes. Or within? Absolutely. What it, what it means is as you progress with this knowledge of the self, yeah, to that extent, your desires naturally fall away. You become less dependent on the world. See, look, what that means is right now you come to a class once a week for one hour. Yeah. The amount of knowledge you gain of the self in this one hour, if you convert it to wisdom, then to that degree you will reduce your desires. Is that clear to everyone? But if you study every morning, you gain more knowledge of the self, then that, to that extent, you'll reduce more desires. When you reach enlightenment, meaning you are with the self 100%, all your desires are gone. You become free of all desires. This state is of one with steady wisdom. So the more knowledge of the self you get, the more desires fall away. Now, when I say knowledge, means wisdom, means converting that knowledge into wisdom. Yeah, you may have all the knowledge, but no wisdom. So therefore, the more knowledge you get, more desires fall away. So the one who has got 100% knowledge of the self Converted to, to wisdom, this state is of one with steady wisdom. So basically it means giving up your desires, isn't it? Any questions? More knowledge, wisdom, desires reduce. Just, yeah, Vanita. So basically, your um, your so your desires are leaving you, and replacing those desires are the wisdom that takes its place. That each time you gain more wisdom, that's how it, because something has to take its place, right? Yep, absolutely. You can't be left empty. Is that how it works? Yep. So you're replacing it with knowledge of the self. We're going to go more detail into this. But yes, does everyone understand that? As you gain more knowledge of the self, desires reduce. 
So some people misunderstand this and they try to abstain from desires. They suppress them. They don't act on them. I'm going to live in a monastery. I'm going to stay in an ashram, giving everything up. Live in a cave. This does not work. In fact, they get frustrated. Why doesn't it work? Any idea? You plonk yourself in a cave or an ashram. Is your desires all going to go away? Why does it? Why? Why doesn't it work? Anybody? Let everyone have a little think. Why doesn't it work? Nilam? Is it because wherever you go, you're taking your mind with you? So if you haven't developed, learnt the knowledge and converted it into the wisdom, it doesn't matter where you are, you're still going to have to face that and your inherent um, sort of bastardness. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. I'll stick you in a cave. Your mind will still be able to think about those things. You're still agitated by those thoughts because you haven't given them up. You're not acting on it, but the thoughts are still in your head. Ravi? So it's actually going back to meditation, isn't it? Effectively, if you haven't had the knowledge of how to meditate, you can't just pack everything and walk away because you haven't even gone through that. That's right. As such. You're not prepared mentally to be in that situation. You get frustrated. You try it. Try to give up something that you really enjoy. Your deepest, strongest desire. Something simple like chocolate or something. I don't know what your desires are, but whatever takes your liking. See how the mind behaves. See how many days you can last. Start craving it. See, the minute you tell the mind, I'm not going to do this, the mind wants more. <laughs> what do you mean you're not going to do it? I'm going to have one now. <laughs> you didn't even have a desire to, to have a piece of chocolate right now, but you tell the mind, I'm not going to have any chocolate for a week. It'll demand it straight away. <laughs> this is how the mind works. So you try it. Giving up something when you're not prepared for it. So practically, how can you reduce your desires then? You can't just give them up, yeah? We just, we just discussed why you can't just give them up. How can you reduce the desires then? Anyone? Take a guess. It's 11. Uh, I think you have to act on it to know what it feels. And then once you if you feel good, you're going to continue. If you don't, you're going to let it go. So what if your desire is to kill your neighbor? Oh, but that... <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work acting on it. <laughs> Vanita? So if the ones that you can control, well, if you, if you replace that desire with higher knowledge, then it's taken a place of something that you can keep within you because then there's no space for another desire because you've got the space of wisdom in its place. So in other words, 
you can only be free from lower desires by taking up something higher. Yeah? Are we all on the same page? You can only reduce your lower desires by taking up something higher. Example, when you were a child, you had your toys, toy cars, your dollies, your computer games, Pac-Man, whatever it is. And that's, that was your possession, strong desire you had attached to those toys. Nobody, you don't want anyone to touch it. Somebody, child comes and your mom says, play, let your, let the other child play with her. He said, no, it's mine. These are your possessions. You can't part with them. Yeah, everyone understand? As you grow up to be a teenager, you have teenager desires, strong desire for a bicycle, Xbox, whatever it is. In my days, it was a bicycle. You get a bike. What happens to the toys? The dollies, action man, and all that. What happens to that? Anyone? You still play with them? Or you have your friends on the bike gallivanting? No longer interested in those toys. Why? Because you've taken up something higher. Bike gives you the freedom to go places. Who needs the toys? You put them in a box on top of the cupboard just in case one day I might want to play with them. But you never do. Then you're 18. You take driving lessons, pass your test. What's your desire for now? A car. Where's the bike? You get a car, where's the bike? You carry it in the boot everywhere you go? in the garage collecting dust. Why? Because you're taking up something higher. I'm giving you an example in a material world, how we behave. When you're young and sig single, nightclub, disco, parties, that's what you enjoy. You get married, have children. Those parting desires fall away. Why? Higher desire, welfare of children. Welfare of your partner, family, community, these bring you the joys now. You grow out of it. You don't have a desire for it anymore. Something else higher is taken over your desires. Those lower desires fallen away. So you see how it works? You see how it works? You, you cannot drop your desires. You can only grow out of them by taking up something higher. Those toys you're 100% attached to, that bicycle you, are, you wouldn't let anyone touch, where are they now? You don't even think about it. Now you're older, your desires are for family, children, name, fame, wealth, power, status. That's all your desires. Those are your joys now, your toys that get, make your joys. Any questions?
is I'm, I'm showing, we're demonstrating and discussing how desires can be eliminated, yeah? So these desires for name, fame, children, family, how can we eliminate these desires? Anyone? How can we eliminate these desires? What's the next level up? From toys, you went to bike. Bike, you went to a car. Car, you went to family, work, promotion, status, all those worldly things. How do you eliminate those desires now? What's higher than this? Spiritual knowledge. Knowledge of the higher, knowledge of the self, which is what we're doing here. As we gain more knowledge of the self, we develop spiritually. We begin to live the higher values of life. And as we do that, we're less interested in worldly objects and beings. As you gain more knowledge of the self, the desires of worldly objects and beings reduce. So what happens to the lower worldly desires? They start falling away. The more knowledge of the self, the less worldly desires, as we explained. This is called renunciation. Remember that word, because it'll come up a lot in the Gita. Renunciation. In spiritual development, this word is used quite a lot. But this is what renunciation means. Taking up something higher, the lower falls away. Until finally, no more worldly desires. Only one desire to attain enlightenment. Any clarifications? So, so you, this way. the example you gave was to say, how do we eliminate our desire for family? Um, but actually, we can't renounce our family because you just said gaining more knowledge of the self reduces worldly desires, which is renunciation. But you can't renounce your family. Mm. So, because our duty is towards our family. Yeah. So what does that renunciation in that term mean? So any idea, any, anybody? What does it mean? You can't renounce our family. Well, some people do. They go and live in ashram and say, that's it. I'm leaving all of you. Do what you want, I'm going. Any idea? Deepa? family and that it's reducing your attachment and expectations rather than renouncing them physically. Yeah. You're reducing your dependency on them for, for your happiness. See, right now you depend on your children, your partner, your family, for your contentment, your happiness. These are your desires. But as you gain more knowledge of the self, you're less dependent. That doesn't mean you don't do your obligatory duty. The welfare of your children, the welfare of your partner, you don't give that up. <laughs> I'm going to do 
becomes is part of your duty. Got to be careful what I say here, you know. But you're de not dependent on them anymore for your joys, your fancies, your happiness. The knowledge of the self fulfills you. You don't need to gain happiness from the world because you're fulfilled by the knowledge of the self, which is you at the end of the day. You are the self. All you're doing is discovering who you are. Don't forget. You are the self. You've forgotten you're the self. All we're doing is reminding you. You are God. You've forgotten that you're God. All this class is just to remind you that you've forgotten who you are. It's crazy, doesn't it? You are not Nilam, your God. You're not Vanita, your God. You've forgotten. So only one desire left to attain enlightenment. See, the reason we find it difficult to do this is because we're attached to our body, mind, and intellect. And, this is, and that is the reason for all our suffering in life. We're attached to the body, we're attached to the mind, we're attached to it. And this is all our suffering. Body is affected by hot and cold. Oh, I'm feeling so hot. I'm feeling so cold. Body is affected. Mind is affected by joy and sorrow. I'm so happy. Oh, I'm so miserable. You're affected. Intellect, affected by worldly thoughts, your ideas of life. And due to this attachment, we can't let go. So that example I, I sent to everybody on their phone, on their WhatsApp. Let me get it, so I remember. If anybody can have a look at that example. Everyone got that, yeah? Okay. Oh, there you go. Thank you, Rui. So in the first diagram, you have a magnet and a piece of metal. The magnet represents the world and the metal piece represents the body, mind, and intellect. What happens to the metal piece when you bring it close to the magnet? It sticks to the magnet. Yeah, everyone knows that. It's hard to take it apart if the magnet is strong. It, the metal piece is affected by the magnet. Similarly, when the body, mind, intellect attaches, sticks to the world, it is affected by the world. This is the law. Does everyone understand that? The first stage. Your body, mind, intellect is that metal piece. The magnet is the world. It's attached to the world. In the second diagram, there is a magnet and a wooden piece. The wooden piece represents the self. What happens when a magnet is placed near the wooden piece? Nothing. It doesn't stick. Nothing, no effect on the wooden piece. 
Doesn't matter how strong the magnet, the wood will not stick. Similarly, the self does not attach to the world. It is not affected by the world. Does everyone understand the first and the second diagram? In the third diagram, it shows how we are in the world. We are the self, the wooden piece, and the body, mind, intellect, the metal piece. And we attach to the world. And that is because we identify more with our material layers, our body, mind, intellect, than with the self. In fact, we have no knowledge of the self. Majority of people have no knowledge of the self. They're attached to the world. This is the majority of people in the world. So therefore, whatever happens to the body, mind, intellect happens to you. You are affected. Does everyone see the third diagram? The magnet, the metal piece, and the self. That is us. The self and the metal piece is us. That's a human being. Self plus body, mind, intellect. Thank you, Ravi. That's, that's us, human being. Self and body, mind, intellect. Wooden piece and a metal piece. So lack of knowledge of self, of your true personality, you're affected by the world. So as we slowly gain knowledge of the self, we identify and attach ourselves more to the self. The result of that is the body, mind, intellect starts to detach from the world. That metal piece detaches from the world, from the magnet. The wooden piece pulls it away. Your worldly desires start to reduce. And as your worldly desires reduce, less dependent on the world. Does everyone understand that diagram? Ben, make sense? So as your worldly desires reduce, less dependent on the world. You detach from the body, mind, intellect, attached to the self within you. And then the demands of the body, mind, intellect no longer affect you in the same way. You have no interest in the world. The problem is most people are not aware of this. You may be the most intelligent person, but you're not aware of this. So, you know, we say, what knowledge do you have? Anything of the world, knowledge of the world, has no meaning. So, in a nutshell, you can't just drop your desires to become self-realized. You have to reduce your desires slowly by taking up something higher. As you take up the higher aspects of life, the lower fall away. And when you revel only in the self, all worldly desires are gone. I am not this body, mind, and intellect. I am the self. Keep repeating to yourself. Negate the body, mind, intellect. Assert the self. Because as you think, so you become. That's an exercise you can do. I'm not the body, mind, and intellect. I am the self. The more you do that, the more you become the self. As you think, so you become. 
then you're satisfied in the self by the self. So that, O Arjuna, is the state of a person of steady wisdom, a sthitapagniya, a self-realized person. So that Krishna answers first question. How does he behave? What is the characteristics of a self-realized person? See how, see how much knowledge there is in one verse. Did my head in trying to get ready for this class. How to explain such deep knowledge in simple terms. I've no idea if I achieved that, but I've tried. <laughs> so this is how we get on with the next verses. Krishna answers, answers his other questions. Ravi. The blessed Lord Krishna starts his exposition of a man of perfection. This verse answers Arjuna's first question, asking for a description of the enlightened soul. The supreme state of human enlightenment encompasses two distinct achievements. With the first of the achievements, one has rid the mind of all its desires. The second achievement, the state of total fulfillment, comes when one revels in the self by the self. Actually, the mind will become free from desires only to the extent one identifies with the self. As one advances in knowledge of the self, desires reduce. Upon reaching the ultimate state of self-realization, all desires vanish. This verse has been poorly interpreted and seekers misguided. In the guise of renunciation, people abruptly abandon their stations and activities and give up their duties and responsibilities. Little do people realize they cannot give up desires by mere physical abstinence. The first part of the verse states that a person casts away all desires from his mind. This has no meaning without the second part, wherein he remains satisfied in the self by the self. Desires pertaining to any stage of life fall off only when you move up to the next higher stage. When you were a child, you were full of desires for the toy world. In that stage, you cannot really give up your toys and playthings. Have them or not, you still desire them. But when you grow older, you entertain a different set of desires pertaining to that age. The desires for toys are no more. You do not give up the toys. Your thoughts have moved with you up to the adult world. One moves up to higher strata or spiritual development by learning and living the higher values of life. As you advance to higher levels of development, the desires pertaining to the lower level naturally drop off. But most people do not educate themselves on higher values and stagnate painfully at a certain level. They entertain the same mundane desires, such as name, fame, power, position, status, money, and family. These are the toys that make their joys. They can never stop these desires unless they rise by taking up the higher values. 
Once a person develops to the ultimate state of self-realization, all his desires vanish. The verse describes that sublime state of human perfection. In renunciation, therefore, you do not give up anything. You only take up higher values. With the establishment of higher values, you automatically renounce the lower values. It is like a flower shredding, shedding its petals. When a flower grows into a fruit, the petals of the flower fall away. You cannot reverse the process. If you try to pluck the petals to accelerate its growth into a fruit, the fruit will never emerge out of that flower. The growth of the flower causes the petals to drop. Similarly, the growth of your spiritual personality marks the renunciation of your desires. And then in the ultimate state of self-realization, all your desires fall away. Thank you, Ravi. He gives that example, flower shedding its petals. When a flower grows into fruit, the petals of the flower fall away. You cannot start plucking the petals off before the fruit has grown. Otherwise, the fruit won't emerge. It's a natural thing that happens. As the fruit emerges, the petals fall away. Same thing happens with our desires. Growth in spiritual development, knowledge of the self, naturally your, your gross desires, worldly desires don't interest you, they fall away. You see, while you've been, some of you have been coming here for a few years, I'm sure that there are desires that they used to manifest in your mind. Now, if they still manifest, you'll say, you know what? I don't need that. I don't want to do that. It doesn't interest me anymore. Any questions? Ravi. Shamila's got a question, so I'll yeah. um, say. She wants to ask if why are you creating more desires if you want to stop? I mean, why are you creating more desires? You're getting rid of your lower ones, but you're creating a higher desire. Is that a desire as such? Yeah. So in respect to spirituality, that higher desire is to for liberation. Right now, you're dependent, all your desires are worldly desires. You're dependent on them for your happiness. Yes, they're never ending and you're developing more and more and more. As soon as you pitch up to the higher, I want to be some self-realized, I want to develop spiritually, then automatically the lower desires fall away. Meaning you have no interest in those desires. They do not bring you the happiness that you're looking for. The knowledge of the self, spiritual development is fulfilling you far, far greater than any worldly gross desire. So the lower desires is actually, in most cases, is for satisfying your senses and so forth. Yeah, they're all worldly desires. In another way of putting it is that when you have a higher desire for spiritual development, that one desire might offload 100 gross desires. So even though you're taking a higher, uh, creating a new desire, what you're doing is eliminating a lot of the lower gross desires and the quantity of the gross desires are far, far greater 
than the spiritual desire. So yes, you are creating, but at the same time, you're eliminating so many more. And those are desires that you think are bringing, giving me happiness, which they're not. Because you don't know what true happiness is. Thank you. See, a self-realized person wants nothing. And he's happy. <laughs> we want everything and we're still not happy. <laughs> you see the difference? Why? Reveling in the knowledge of the self of the self. That's why. Is that okay? Yeah, thank Jamila? you. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. Any other clarifications? So there's a lot to take in today's class. Bonita, you okay? Avanaben, Nilam, Dipa. Think about it. Think about today's class, and it gives you the blueprint of how to get there. Right, so we will look forward to learning about Arjuna's second and third question in the next class. Krishna will explain it to us. So Tuesday, we'll have group discussion. If you have any questions pertaining to today's class or any other classes, we can discuss it in a more informal way. So please join us. Thank you.